welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the fastest growing movie podcast out there where we talk all things film. On today's episode, we discuss The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James, and we're going to conclude our series on The Lord of the Rings films with The Return of the King right now, which was released in 2003, directed by Peter Jackson, written by Peter Jackson, Philippa Boyens, and Fran Walsh. This film won 11 Oscars. 11. It cleaned up shop. It won Best Picture, Best Movie of the Year, one of the best films. The Century, number seven rank on IMDb user. It actually has the best record for um, Oscar wins per nominations. It's 11 for 11. It was nominated for 11 Oscars and, and won all 11. And no other film has ever done that well before. There have been movies that have won that many Oscars, but they were nominated for more awards. So they didn't have a, a perfect score. So although it didn't get the, the what's it called? Like the, the acting categories. The like, five? Yeah. What's it called? That like five or yeah, something. The, like yeah. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest has. Yeah. And I think... Chinatown, maybe no, not yeah, Chinatown. And that, Godfather. And that's Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Lead Actor, and Lead Actress. Silence of the Lambs is the other one. Silence yeah. of the Lambs and yeah. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Cuckoo Nest. There's another there. one. I can't remember what yeah. it is, but there's three. That's a that's super rare. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see our amazing costumes. James and I have dressed up for the special episode. I am dressed as Legolas, and James is Frodo. I even have a ring. Yeah, he has a ring, and He's... I have the Lothlorien leaf on yeah. my my uh, garment, your cloak. Yeah, my cloak. I have the Legolas hair, the braids. And you everything. look ridiculously good. Thanks, man. I'm not gonna say. Should I just try and get this hair in real life? You should just glue that wig to your head forever. <laughs> the crooked wig, even if it's crooked. It, the Widow's Peak is actually spot on right now. Oh, is it? Is it yeah. lined up? Yeah, I wasn't sure. You guys get to check these out on YouTube if you really want to get a laugh in out of this episode. Uh, it's a little toasty, but I'm gonna pull through it. Hey, I'm warm too. I'm wearing a blanket, bro. I'm wearing a wig. <laughs> Anyways, Return of the King is, of course. The best of the trilogy, in my opinion. I love it very much. And it concludes this epic journey, this epic fantasy of this dense world of rich characters and and magic and orcs and swords and horses and castles. And it's amazing. I love every second of these movies. The very best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You'll get perks like personalized messages, personalized videos. You'll see our schedules for upcoming episodes. Top patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast as well as exclusive video content that no one else gets to see. Head on over to our brand new website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com. Check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our apparel, our movie posters, and you can also join Patreon there. It's an amazing thing that Peter Jackson did wrapping this franchise up because the scope of the film, of the franchise, got gigantic with this movie. I mean, the battles in this movie are just insanely big. There's so many moving parts. There are so many new sets and environments. Uh, you, Mount Doom, Mordor, uh, Minas Tirith, like so many new areas to that we get to explore with the characters and uh, in that, that city on the river. Like there's just so much to this movie that they, like, with each film, Jackson kept adding and adding to the world, and it's amazing that he achieved this. I mean, you could argue, you could make the argument that for having accomplished this trilogy, you could put him up there as one of the best filmmakers ever because of this accomplishment. I agree. I mean, again, he made all three of these films back to back to back to back, editing in in post production while he's filming at the same time, and so it's a daunting task, I'm sure, for any filmmaker. But Peter Jackson somehow kept it together. In, in terms of having these large sets, building these sets for real, the practical sets, even Minas Tirith, it's a, it's a real set. It's a miniature, of course, but it's real. Um, these tons of extras, hundreds and thousands of extras, so different locations around New Zealand, and, I mean, helicopters, and just the, the sheer scope of what he accomplished with all three of these films, and again, especially the last one, because we get these vast armies that we saw a glimpse of with uh, Helm's Deep in The Two Towers, but to actually see multiple battles of these enormous armies, it's incredible. It had never been done before on this scale. I mean, in the in early film history, like in the in the 40s and 50s, there were epics that were made, uh, but they were all made practically. But there weren't like tens of thousands of people in those armies. But they like Cleopatra is the biggest movie ever made. Like they built these giant sets for it. Um, but Jackson blended modern technology, and they were developing so much technology. But I think Peter Jackson just. I think what what it was that he just he put himself he just poured everything out for five for six years straight just gave everything he had 
to the project and just committed completely. Like for six years, he directed this movie and didn't do anything else. And I think that is a testament to his dedication. And my favorite story about Peter Jackson's dedication is that um, filming did not actually finish until after the film won the Best Picture Oscar. And so the final day of filming on the trilogy was a pickup shot that Peter Jackson got for the extended uh, Blu-ray version uh, where he, he wanted to get this shot of a tunnel with skulls on the floor. I can't remember what scene it is. Uh, Paths of the Dead. And I think it's in the, the first act. And he filmed this shot three weeks after Return of the King won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. So hey, they were done. It's just like Zack Snyder when people say with Justice League, what's the point of those extra scenes at the end of the movie? It's his vision. That's what he wanted to do originally. So that's why he had the the nightmare sequence and then also the sequence with Lex Luthor on the yacht. That's mm-hmm. he, he kept those on. It has nothing to do with the film because they're not making sequels, but that was his vision. That's the same thing with Peter Jackson. Yeah, he wanted to show everyone like, oh, I, I had a plan for all this. So and I, I understand that. And I love the opening of Return of the King because it reminds me so much of... The Fellowship of the Ring, where it starts off in a very dark tone, and then it loosens up, you know. So we have, just like in Fellowship, we have the battle of of Sauron versus the armies of men and elves, where Isildur uh, refuses to throw the ring into Mordor. And then Return of the King opens up. We think it's going to be a light tone, but it's actually dark because it's when Smeagol murders Deagle. And I love the way uh, Peter Jackson opens it up with the shot of Smeagol piercing a worm with the fishing hook and you can just see that he's enjoying giving pain and inflicting pain and murder on this of this living being that's it's really weird and, and disturbing he's really excited for that fish he's man. like i'm gonna stab the hell out of that worm <laughs> it's also great to see andy circus his actual face and they actually didn't plan this they planned on casting an actor um that wasn't already involved with film but then as they were filming with Andy Serkis and included him into the motion capture process. They were like, okay, we need to cast Andy as Smeagol for the opening of this film. And it's actually back-to-back episodes with him because we just had him in Black Panther. Oh, we've been all over Andy Serkis. Because Andy Serkis is one of our favorite actors for sure. And it's interesting because this portion of the story of this, obviously the trilogy of books, it's really just meant to be one book. That was Tolkien's vision the whole time. But this actually is described in The Fellowship of the Ring. But I think that what Peter Jackson did with two major aspects of this film, of the series, was he put this at the beginning of Return of the King purposely, and then he also, the forging of the sword for Aragorn, that also takes place in Fellowship when they go off on their journey. Not till later on does it happen in the movies in Return of the King. And also the ending of Two Towers, it ends with Saruman's death in Isengard. So that's the last part of that book. Um, and Peter Jackson felt that that wasn't very a very great ending for Two Towers. So he instead changed the ending of Two Towers to them winning in Helm's Deep. And then Gandalf says the epic line, uh, the battle for Middle-earth is over and the battle for the battle of Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle-earth has begun. Um, and that's when the film ends on a high point. Whereas if they went to Sauron, it would have been like, Sauron, it would have been like, uh, this is kind of a downer for the ending. And so they, Peter Jackson put the Sauron scene right after the Smeagol scene to open the movie. Yeah, he does this because this is what happens when you're telling a story from book to cinema. You have to adapt it and change it for telling it in that different format, which is okay. It's fine. I know a lot of people get upset because it's not chapter to chapter the exact same thing, but you got to do what you got to do for the film. And again, the opening is fantastic because we learn the story of Smeagol and how he became Gollum. And it's just as disturbing and interesting as Gollum is. And the means that he obtains the ring is what I think makes his corruption so much worse than Bilbo and the, what eventually starts to happen to Frodo because he committed a mortal sin to obtain the ring. And in the in the books, they describe how he actually went back to his village, but Smeagol was using the ring for nefarious means and disturbing the peace, basically, so they kicked him out. And so... Obviously, Smeagol also wasn't that great of a person, which I think Peter Jackson really wants to show you with the opening shot with the worm. And the thing about Gollum and this transformation where they go from Smeagol to Gollum, and it's a great sequence where Andy Serkis is wearing all this prosthetic makeup and showing the aging of him over centuries. And they actually did uh, the same thing with Elijah Wood, um, his his character of Frodo, where um, Peter Jackson had an idea of filming a sequence I think it could have been a dream sequence that Frodo would see about what could happen to him and they actually put him in the same kind of makeup that they used for Gollum and Andy Serkis and so there's images of of Elijah Wood with this crazy horror 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply prosthetic with like thin long hair just like Gollum and it's pretty funny I gotta check that out yeah look it online this episode is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com the leaders in men's below the waist grooming use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com over 2 million men are using manscaped products right now including their amazing waterproof lawnmower 3.0 groomer it's got a built-in light it's sensitive to the touch you can use it anywhere you can use it in the shower it's amazing their boxer briefs colognes deodorizers their their wipes everything they've sent us is amazing fellas you have to get on manscaped and everyone listening these are great gifts for the men in your life coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout and so smeagol is is turns into Gollum, and instead of living in sunlight and moonlight and with nature, he decides to head to the caves and the mountains of the Misty Mountains. And this is actually beneficial to him because he's hiding. He doesn't know, but he's hidden from Sauron. So Sauron can't find him while he's in these caves. And he's, he's there for hundreds of years because he's he's over 500 years old by the time the fellowship takes place. But that's when the ring wants to find a new owner. And that's basically how Bilbo finds the ring is because the ring is calling to somebody else. And it, it's take it's been taken as far as Gollum can take it. And it wants to be found and wants to be brought back home. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't want to hang out with Gollum forever. I know. It's not the best company. How many more hundreds of years and centuries can you spend in a cave? Jeez. (laughs) And the extended version does show Saruman's death um, that's cut from the theatrical version that most people see. And it's really a great scene where Gandalf um, and Saruman exchange words. And then um, Saruman falls off the tower and he's literally impaled by this... um, Structure. Well, it's after he's stabbed by Wormtongue. Yeah, after he's st- stabbed by Wormtongue, and he's and he's impaled, and it's a great death. But I think that it was just five minutes too much for for theaters. So Peter Jackson cut it. But it's a great scene if you want to check it out on the features. In case you haven't seen it and you're kind of curious, like what happened to Saruman, uh, Peter Jackson shows in the extended version. Yeah, speaking of Saruman, we we are also taken to Isengard early, which is just hilarious because that's where Merry Pippin in the trees have just destroyed Isengard and taken it back. And it's really fun because they're sitting there and smoking. But again, going back to when I said this reminds me of Fellowship of the Ring, the tone of the first act, it's we have the dark set setting with Smeagol turning into Gollum, which is borderline horror film. And then Isengard's hilarious and, and very light because he doesn't really show that murder. But And also Merry and Pippin are getting lit. Yeah, they're hilarious. <laughs> they're smoking the, they're the, smoking the, the leaf. Lot. They're smoking a ton. And then we go to Rohan and it's, very similar to the Shire in Fellowship of the Ring in the first act, and we, it's it's very light and fun, and they're they're drinking and eating and there's banquets and they're enjoying life, and I think it's yeah they're celebrating yeah I think it's necessary not only for the audience to have this kind of moment, but also the characters to remember what they're fighting for. They're fighting for civilization. They're fighting for peace and harmony. Harmony, and it's it's kind of like basically what samwise represents throughout the films but also just a representation of that in in these beings and and the the challenge that um rohan the people of rohan and all the humans on earth faces the lack of desire to unite because rohan and gondor were once allies and now they're not enemies but they don't want to help each other and they don't want to become allies in the in this fight they have animosity because yeah. Gondor didn't help at this time. Then Rohan didn't help here. So like, why should why should Rohan help Gondor Gondor if they didn't help at this one another time? It's gonna take one person to unite them. And Gandalf knows that the only person that can unite all of Middle Earth is gonna be Aragorn. And his storyline in this film is to fulfill the prophecy 
um, and take up the reign that he was born into as the heir, heir of Isildur. And it's an amazing uh, journey for Aragorn in this film. I think he's probably, you could say, he's the most transformative character of the franchise to go from Strider, the ranger, to becoming the king of Middle-earth, uh, the, the king of Gondor. So I think he's a, a, a great character in this movie. Yeah, Aragorn's fantastic. And throughout the series, the film specifically, he's hesitant to accept the honor and accept the prophecy and and take the throne of Gondor because of the shame that he has in his bloodline because it's his bloodline, Isildur, the person who had the ring, could have destroyed it, but didn't, but couldn't. Because no one can actually destroy the ring and throw it into the fires of Mordor. But Aragorn didn't really want to accept that. And he was also, again, he's we've talked about earlier, he was raised by elves in Elrond. So he has kind of like it's two separate lives in a way. And ironically... It takes the aid of Arwen without his uh, without his knowing to help him accept that and take up the reins because Arwen is the one who convinces her father Elrond to reforge the sword when she decides to stay and not enter the land of the the Undying Lands and and to to stay in Middle Earth. And if it wasn't for her deciding to stay after seeing that vision of her son with um, the father Aragorn. If she didn't see that vision, she wouldn't have gone back to Elrond and she wouldn't have talked him into forging the sword. So Arwen um, is vital to the plot of this movie. Exactly. Seeing the vision of her son, Aragorn's son, is what prompts the whole thing because we learn that she goes to Elrond, but in Elrond foresaw this. He foresaw the vision of the child because he has foresight. <laughs> so he tells Arwen when she confronts him about it that that future has it's has a... It's losing its chance to come true. It's but, not lost, but it's losing its power. It's losing its chance. And because Arwen renounces the Undying Lands and the ritual to, to fulfill the immortality of the elves, the life of the Eldar is leaving her. And now her life is tied to the fate of the ring at this point. And she's, she'll probably die if, if the war ends tragically because her death would be a side effect of Sauron obtaining the ring not a direct result of it, but eventually she dies. She's t she's tied to the 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 journey of the ring at this Basically, point. Basically, so yeah. if the, if the so ring... aren't all creatures that aren't immortal. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing with Elrond is he he misleads his daughter and he lies to his daughter. And when she tells she says that she knew of the vision, he says that he saw the vision. and He saw death, um, but he doesn't understand. Also saw life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He doesn't understand that. She wouldn't care about death as long because what she cares more about is the life that she can bring into the world, which would be her her eventual son if she stuck with Aragorn. And so he has a very flawed way of looking at the future because he just wants his daughter to to live forever. But which, you can empathize yeah. with that. You don't want yeah. your daughter to die if she's an elf and she can live forever like you would be yeah. over 8,000, 6,000 years old. And you also, like, you don't want her to date any bad boys like yeah. Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even have a job. He just, like, rides around on a horse, you know? <laughs> it's the same thing of, like, having a cool car. <laughs> but it's, it's Arwen, like you said, and also Elrond, who help Aragorn accept his fate and become the king of Gondor because... She convinces Elrond to forge the sword, uh, reforge the sword Narsil, the elves of Rivendell do it, into a new sword, which Aragorn names Anduril. Um, and I love the sword because it's kind of symbolic and reminds me of Excalibur because when Elrond visits Aragorn before the battle at the camps, he tells him that to put, the side, put aside the ranger, become who you're born to be, the wielder of the sword has the power to summon an army more dangerous than any on the planet, and the army, the, that dead army, will only answer to the King of Gondor. Yeah, and the the army of the dead is a great sequence. I, I got to ask you an important question, though. Go for it, man. Who was your favorite character in the video game? In the video game? Yeah. To play with? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Legolas, Legolas was great to play with because he had so many great different weapons. And he, he has the swords, the two swords, and yeah. also the bow and arrow. But Aragorn's pretty dope too. I always point with Ar with Legolas. Yeah, because well, of the arrows. Yeah, it's like awesome. Well, he's got two swords. Yeah, and the, the two swords and also the arrows to be able to shoot people with arrows is a lot of fun. I think I was usually Aragorn because when we played two player, you were always Legolas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you always be like, I want to be Legolas. I'd be like, fine, bro. I never said that. Don't, don't listen to him, guys. <laughs> but I remember the army of the dead sequence was really difficult. Yeah, and so you want to keep talking about the army of the dead? We keep going. Let's go, army Let's go. of the dead, bro. So that trio, it's. It's Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, the homies, and 
there at the camp, but they, but Aragorn summoned in a way by the ghosts of the army of the dead, and Gandalf kind of implores for him to go in that direction. And Elrond tells him to unite that army, and so they they abandon the army, which obviously is a morale bl- blow to the men that are being led by Aragorn as they watch him leave. And then Theoden gives like probably the worst pep talk ever, where he's like, he pretty much says. You know, we're going to die tomorrow, but we're going to die, like, fighting. It's like, we're going to die anyways. Who cares, bro? <laughs> we're all like dead. The, thanks for the encouragement, King. They got trolls. <laughs> trolls? How many trolls do we have? We have, we have zero trolls. They have elephants. We have a hobbit. <laughs> That's our secret weapon is a hobbit. <laughs> but I love the journey to the Army of the Dead because, again, so many vibes of this film and points of this film feel horror-esque and they enter the the cave and I love how Aragorn's, I fear no death. And he just goes into the dark and Gimli's like, oh, the, an elf goes into underground before, uh, before a dwarf, before a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is also sponsored by movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Movieposters.com is the number one place to get your posters online today. Don't go on Amazon. Use movieposters.com. It's high quality printing. Any kind of movie you can think of, framing, backlighting, all sorts of poster sizes, they got it. If you're passionate about movies and TV shows like we are, there's no better way to show that passion than by decking your house out with a ton of movie posters. Movieposters.com has also teamed up with our podcast to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost Podcast posters. You can find these posters through our website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com. Again, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com. And again, go to movieposters.com and use our coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Peter Jackson, actually, his least favorite part of the book is the Army of the Dead. Because he, I think he viewed it as kind of like an easy out for the Aragorn and the army to defeat uh, Sauron's forces at, at uh, Minas Tirith. But it's an important part of the lore and the novel so he kept it in but he didn't actually like having the army of the dead and he kind of did it reluctantly although i think it's really great i love the army but a lot of people say like why don't they just keep the army the whole time and then and go to mordor with the army and just mess up sauron's army at at the black gate and the thing is like aragorn his character we see his character for three movies and what what are his qualities? He's honorable. He's a man of his word. Uh, he's a leader, and he keeps his promises. And so it's only right for him to um, bless the army to set them free and um, ease them of their, of their curse they've been on. And so I don't have a problem at all with him lifting the curse after the battle on the fields of Pelennor. No, he owed it to them because yeah. the army of the dead were men of the White Mountains, and they were cursed to remain in Middle-earth by Isildur after they abandoned their oath to aid him in the War of the Last Alliance. And since the line of Isildur was thought to have ended, no one knew really that Aragorn was the, the rightful heir to the throne. No one could call upon the army of the dead to aid them on their in their hours of need and because they would only answer to the heir of Isildur. And that's when Aragorn goes in there with the sword. He's able to deflect the sword swipe of the dead king and grabs him by the throat. He's like, you're going to fight for me, motherfucker. Well, he doesn't say that. But... <laughs> I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> and he offers the army of the dead with a choice, which is, I think, really interesting because it doesn't mean that they're compelled to fight for Aragorn. They're left with the choice. You can remain cursed and remain dead or undead on this plane in this in this being form, or you can fight for Aragorn and be set free. Yeah. I love that moment. It's a great scene. And the thing, what's so great about this movie is that even though the the fellowship, the original OGs are all split up, every character has a very important role to play in the film in different regards, and everyone has important storylines. It's like not, it's not like someone's just there for comic relief. And that's what's so great about these movies is that the ensemble, even though they're not together, they all have vital roles to play. Well, let's get into Merry and Pippin. I want to save the the good trio for okay. later. Yeah, yeah, Gollum we'll save, trio. Save that bacon. Well, let's warm up some more with Merry and Pippin because them two are split up and they're inseparable in throughout all the, throughout the first two films and they're best buds and they're the youngest of the four hobbits, hence why they're most they're the closest. And even Pippin, though they look the oldest, yeah, they do <laughs> look the, the oldest. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Pippin has a very large role to play in this film because. First, he foolishly seeks that orb which possesses, which possesses him. The Palantir. Yes, Sar- Saruman's orb. It possesses him momentarily, but he learns of Sauron's plans, of Sauron's plans, while refusing to give up his friends. Thank God. And now Sauron thinks that Pippin has the ring, 
and Gandalf has to take Pippin to Minas Tirith because that's where the tree is that he saw in his vision because that shows you that Sauron's going to attack Minas Tirith. Yeah. And also Pippin is important because he lights the beacon for Gandalf to send word to Rohan for help when Minas Tirith is about to be invaded. Those must be the worst fucking jobs. <laughs> Just to sit on a mountaintop in freezing cold for who, who knows years, how long. For years. On the off chance that it gets lit. I love how quickly they light. Like, what if they weren't looking? Yeah, what if someone was, like, taking a shit? <laughs> <laughs> how do they get food? What, do they just get, like, rice shipments every year? That's one of those sequences where it's great and it's really beautiful. And Visually the stunning, it's, yeah. The music's awesome and it's a lot of fun. But then also, it's, like, practically, it's, like, that fucking sucks. That job is to terrible. To be that, the person who has to light that flame. I'm sure they have shifts, like, every week or so. But, yeah. man, that must suck. <laughs> and then Mary, he stays in Rohan with Ewan. Eowyn. I keep saying Ewan. Eowyn. Yeah. Eowyn. It's a soft E. And again, this is the first time we've seen these two separated. And he accompanies her with her journey to the campsite before the battle where she's secretly going to fight. She's going to dress up as one of the men. She's hiding a gun in her. She's hiding a Glock in her horse. (laughs) (laughs) Because Eowyn is just as brave as Aragorn. She's just as brave as any of the men in in the Rohan army. And she has to hide the fact that she's gonna fight, and she impersonates a man and fights. Well, act in the, in the book, we when you read the book, you don't even know it's her. So, Tolkien wrote this new character. I can't remember his name. He's just like, like some soldier that is introduced in Eowyn. Beowyn. And um, so you don't even know it's her until she takes her helmet off in the battle. Um, in the middle of the Fields of Pelennor battle. But in the film, I mean, it wouldn't work in the film because then it would make it look like Mary's an idiot. <laughs> you can't tell that that's not Eowyn. <laughs> You've been with Eowyn for like three days. <laughs> Come on, Mary. You didn't, you didn't know it So it's like a different character in the book and then it, she reveals herself because she wears like um, a, a mask, a helmet that covers everything. So you don't even know it's her um in the book but it, it's i think it's obvious you have to let her the audience know it's her the whole time yeah but she's great in this movie because she does get you know turned down in a way by aragorn because aragorn's love lies with arwen he swiped left and um <laughs> Eowyn basically you can say maybe responds to that with deciding to fight and wanting to fight for her country and She's the one who saves Theoden in battle, and she's the one who kills the Witch King when the Witch King says, no man can kill me. Yeah, Angmar. And so she has a huge role to play in this film. And she does. She makes out pretty well. I mean, she gets Faramir at the end. Yeah, so yeah, Faramir's she did pretty good. He's a good-looking dude. Yeah, he's a handsome guy. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary's great because, like you keep saying when we talk about these films, the smallest of beings can have the largest impact, and he won't have the largest impact on the battlefield. But just like Eowyn says when Carl Urban makes fun of him, why can't he fight? Why can't he fight for the people he loves in his home? And what's different? What's the difference between you and him besides size? And the thing with Mary and Pippin is Mary's always been the more responsible, adultish one, and Pippin's always Pippin's always been the immature, silly one. And that's and they have that fight before um, Pippin has to leave, where he's he doesn't really understand and he's kind of like acting like a child who's in trouble. And then Mary's like, I mean, we're I mean, we might not see each we other might again. Not see each other again, but then the roles reverse when he is injured in the battlefield, and then Pippin finds him, and he says, "I'm going to take care of you now." So their roles reverse because throughout the course of the film, when he's in Minas Tirith, he goes through this transformation when he's um, becomes a servant to Denethor and and saves Faramir's life. Where I think he goes through a really great trans- transformation where he becomes a more mature Hobbit. And um, for the better because of his experience on Minas Tirith. We're doing a special giveaway for a Raiders of the Lost podcast hat. In order to enter this contest, you need to be a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. We post daily on Patreon. We got awesome perks like video messages and upcoming podcast schedules and also giveaway contests. That's the only way you can get a Raiders of the Lost podcast hat unless you want to buy one yourself from our website. It doesn't cost a ton of money to sign up for Patreon. We have a $2 tier, a $5 tier, and a $10 tier. Each one comes with specific perks, and all that money goes into the show. To everyone who's already a patron, thank you so much for the support. New patrons, welcome aboard. Good luck, everyone. Speaking of Denethor, this guy is crazy because Denethor wishes that Boromir survived and his son Faramir Faramir died instead. It's, It's really sad to see Faramir be treated by his father like that and Denethor... 
openly says things like that. And he's acting erratically, Denethor, because, he, of course, he's recently found out that his son Boromir is dead. He has his horn and split in half when Gandalf and, and Pippin arrive. And he's also heard of Aragorn, the supposed king of Gondor. And he refuses to believe that this person exists. And he believes that Gandalf will help remove Denethor from the crown to, to knight Aragorn in his place. And also, as we talked about in The Two Towers, there's a great deleted scene between Denethor, Boromir, and Faramir, where Denethor basically tells Boromir that by any means necessary, you have to get the ring and you have to bring it to Gondor. So Denethor, I think, while he's acting so radically, obviously his son died, but also he's responsible. He's more responsible for Boromir's death than anyone else, and I think he's in denial about it. And then he becomes responsible for motivating Faramir to um, head to that river city to try and take it back, even though it would be like a suicide mission for him. It is a suicide yeah. mission, basically. It's yeah. sad because he has to go on a suicide mission to prove his love or win his love for, from his father. Yeah, exactly. So that really takes him over the line to insanity and delusion to try and burn he and his own son alive, even though Faramir is clearly moving around and, and is, he's not alert, but he's clearly alive still. And Denethor... Uh, He's been corrupted by power, just how the ring can corrupt people because of its power. And so I think that is an example of just how when people gain enough power, most sometimes they don't want to let it go. Yeah, and he doesn't want to lose his grip on Gondor. He's not the real king. He's a steward. He's in his place of king. And technically, Faramir and Boromir weren't real princes, but he doesn't want to lose that lordship over the city and over the country. And, and even, even so, when he thinks that Faramir is dead... His biggest problem and the biggest grief he feels is because his his bloodline is over. So he cares more about his bloodline and the in his lineage than he does about his sons, really. And Gandalf tries to comfort and console Faramir and says that he will remember in the end that he loves you. And Denethor, he's so distracted that he's in shock when he finally walks out to the edge of the city oh. and he sees the army of 10,000 outside the walls of Minas Tirith, even though Gandalf was trying to warn him of it. And this is forces Gandalf to take control of the defense of the city. And we see Gandalf throwing some dudes around. Busting he's, heads. He's such a badass in this movie because he does a ton of fighting, does a decent amount of magic too, like that spell he casts of, of that light to save the Gondor soldiers from being attacked by the uh, Nezgirls. I love that scene, especially with like that little kid singing in the choir it's really great well, it's moment. Pippin singing no in the in the field oh yeah never mind with the horses oh the yeah. choir song yeah, yeah at the same yeah. time yeah it, yeah it overtakes the sound of the yeah, yeah. exactly and that the big brass it's it's not, i always get goosebumps when i see that moment howard shore everybody yeah. and the the battle of minas tirith the first one when the ring wraiths attack man i had never seen anything like that when when the fell beasts are flying across the city and just causing destruction and mayhem and there's that amazing score, the best moment of the music in that film. And it's the Fields of Pelennor. It's it's insane. Well, that's when Gondor comes, the Fields of yeah. Pelennor music. Yeah, but also it's the same theme when the uh, beasts are attacking the city. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so intense. And seeing the destruction that the fell beasts have and the power they have, it seems like it's an unstoppable force that Minas Tirith and the people of Gondor are, are up against. And Sauron and their armies, they have some excellent siege tactics because, you know, the ladders in Helm's Deep were great, but then they have these giant... Not even the big ladders were great, too. Yeah, but but the, now they have these structures that trolls are pushing, and then, like, the ramp throws down on top of the wall of Minas Tirith. It's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, and, and they're fortified, so, like, arrows and stuff don't do any... Spears don't do any kind of damage to them, so it's a it's, it's difficult battle for the for the people of Gondor because of the size of the army and also like you said they have these not just trolls but these giant trolls and I think it's the same trolls that that uh, are in charge of moving the gate at the black gate and then they have those like mini rhino trolls that come in too and start tearing everybody up yeah yeah and Gandalf's running around like fight fight until you die like well he's like whatever comes through that door like fuck it up and, like, <laughs> and then a troll comes and in it, and kills a bunch and, of people yeah and the troll is armored with like steel armor all yeah. over it it's it's friggin wild it's, it's an unbelievable battle it's this movie is just so epic, and it's in that set itself. The Minas Tirith set might be one of my favorites in the entire franchise. It's really beautiful, and they built most of it. And they actually had problems with the horses riding because obviously it's a, it got a huge incline up to the top, and obviously they didn't build the entire Minas Tirith, but they did build several levels of Minas Tirith, and it's it's a, it's a high elevation, and they had to put rubber insoles on the shoe on the hoofs of all the horses because they were slipping on the brick because this is a real set and so it's smooth brick going downhill at a, at a low angle so the horses were unable to ride without sliding so they had to 
uh, put rubber underneath their hooves. So what you're saying is they put a bunch of Jordans on these sh- on the hooves of these of these horses, <laughs> yeah, huh? Jordan fives. <laughs> <laughs> and Denethor, he's really kind of a contrast to this this feeling of hope that the other characters are trying to hold on to of of trying to defeat Sauron. And Denethor is the exact opposite. And again, tries to burn his son alive, and then lights himself. He gets lit on fire himself, and then he runs off the cliff of Minas Tirith. But like that's like a half mile run. Like yeah. he's on fire for like a good like three minutes running the whole time. Yeah, but it's a good shot. Yeah, it's a great shot. But like, <laughs> dude, that there's no way he would have made that. He would have made it like twenty feet, baby. It's a good fucking shot, man. <laughs> <laughs> but the battle of Pel- Pelennor Fields begins when. Rohan shows up with 6,000 riders on horseback, and this is an incredible sequence and shot because we have all these horses going full speed into an entire army. Yeah, they just plow through them. It's It's amazing. It's so epic. It's one of my favorite parts. It's so insane. But then, and they they do find a lot of success in this moment, and they start kind of dominating the battle. But then, when after a few minutes, they turn around, and then there's a new army coming forth from Sauron. There's a new army coming forth that's going to add to the Sauron's forces. So they're up against higher odds now. But there's another army that's sneaking <laughs> in the back. And there's that's another the army, army of the of... dead. Oh. Let's go. And Aragorn brings them. And we have obviously great fighting with Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn as they get off the ships with the army of the dead. And they, we have the hilarious contest still going on between Legolas and Gimli. But the army of the dead absolutely obliterates everyone there's that moment when before the army of the dead shows up and it's after so after the cavalry's been busting heads and then they turn around and see that that army of evil men are approaching not on the boats but on land the humans the humans so the evil humans and they're all they're riding elephants these giant all elephants that are like to like six stories tall and it's like and then the, the riders of Rohan, they're just like, let's go, let's go. And they, they line up and they charge at the elephants. But like these things are just brutal. And it's just, it's an insane. I remember seeing it in theaters. And it's like, you you can remember certain movies when you see them for the first time. And just the epic scale of this, like watching these riders ride through the legs of these giant elephants. It's just, it's the scale and epicness of this movie is just Unbelievable. Legless is able to take one out himself, but then Gimli's like, "The still counts as one." <laughs> he takes out like twenty guys up. He takes out like twenty guys up there too. Yeah, but it's an unstoppable army, as Elrond said. And fortunately, Aragorn releases the army of the dead from the curse, and they are able to live in peace and move on. Should we get to Frodo, Gollum, and Sam now? The most important trio, and this is such a great journey the final journey of these three characters because Gollum has been completely corrupted by Smeagol I'm sorry (laughs) Gollum has completely corrupted Smeagol at this point even though Smeagol had control for a little bit before this after Frodo betrayed them Gollum and Smeagol and now Gollum has control of this duality and he's planning to kill the hobbits with a mysterious beast that we don't know of yet And, and Gollum he's very clever in this movie and cunning and he, he knows how to exploit the power of the ring better than anybody because he had the ring for so long. He knows how, how it feels to have it around your neck or in your possession. He knows what it does to you and how it makes you think. And he cleverly turns Frodo against Sam. He does things like accentuates those tirades whenever Sam goes on screaming at Smeagol. He's like, plays the role of the weak victim. Oh, Smeagol, where did, where did Smeagol do? Poor Smeagol, fat, <laughs> fat hobbit hates Smeagol. <laughs> and then he, at the same time, he's also whispering in Frodo's ear when Frodo, when Sam's not watching. And he, he's telling Frodo that the fat hobbit wants the ring. He's going to take it. But also he's telling Frodo like he doesn't understand what it's like to carry the ring. He, like, he doesn't understand the burden you have. So he's helping, he's making Frodo empathize with him. And he's kind of like getting him on his side. Um, and it's it's a brilliant plan by Gollum. Because when it gets to the point um, when he disposes of the elvish bread, the elf, lambus bread? Lambus bread. He it's disposes of the lambus bread. Frame Sam and frame Sam with the look. The crumbs. It's got crumbs. crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> he's always stuffing his face. <laughs> and Frodo has um, been turned against Sam before this. His opinion of Sam has changed, but it's not just that. But it's also the ring is having a great amount of uh, weight on him, and it causes him to to reject Sam and turn him away and make him go back home. And it's it's an emotional part of the film because Frodo and Sam have been, you know, the the couple of the year 
up <laughs> to this point. <laughs> they're great. I love them. They're they're have so much rapport, but. I also love the scene before they start climbing up that staircase because it's at oh, yeah. Venice Morgul and it's terrifying. And I remember being so scared when I was a kid in theaters and Those statues. watching it because when that green light shoots into the sky and we hear the screeching of that of the Nazgul and, and the doors open and we see that army coming through and we also see the Witch King who's heading who's leading them into Angmar. battle. Yeah, uh, the Witch Angmar. King. Yeah. Um, but I love it because... This scene also connects multiple characters who haven't been together in a while. They all see the same thing. They all see that green beam. We also see Gandalf and Pippin looking at it when they're at Minas Tirith. And it's kind of like how you can always see you can always see the misty mountains in the background. That kind of connects everybody too. And even a great continuity aspect of the film is the misty mountains are covered in snow in Two Towers and in The Return of the King because of the avalanche that happened in Fellowship. Oh, yeah. And Peter Jackson actually made the world a little bit smaller geographically so that you can do those things because the the world in the book is a lot larger, so you wouldn't be able to see the Misty Mountains from Minas Tirith. But he, uh, he put them closer together because I think he's like, audiences, they, it would be easier for them to understand the geography and locations of characters if you can see in the background, like, oh, that's Mount Doom and those are the Misty Mountains. So uh, I think it's a, a smart move on his part. And that's a great point that everyone, uh, they see... The, the beam of light and how are you in Minas Tirith and you look at that beam of light and don't think you're absolutely screwed. <laughs> absolutely. Like, I'd, be I'd leave. I'd be like, see you guys later. Bro, you're going to stay here? Do you see that giant light beam shooting into the sky? Yeah, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> and then they start to climb the stairs and I don't think a normal human being could climb these stairs because they are steep, narrow, and winding. And But hobbits are very special yeah. creatures. They're very small. They're light on their feet and they're, they're made for stuff like that. And the stairs our secret back entrance into Mordor that Smeagol has been talking about. But there's something else there, too, that Smeagol won't tell them about. He just talks to Gollum about and how this beast is always hungry. And she's always hungry. She always needs to feed. And, and we're talking about Shelob and her lair. And she's a gigantic spider arachnid. And Peter Jackson is actually arachnophobic. And he, he based the design on Shelob on spiders that he was most afraid of when they were doing research. Yeah, I'm afraid of giant spiders too, said Peter <laughs> Jackson, just like that. But they were actually concerned the production because this movie came out only a couple of years after Chamber of Secrets, actually only one year. And so that Aragog was done so well in Chamber of Secrets, they were kind of intimidated by that spider. They were like, oh man, we got to try and top that. Like, how can we do that? And Shelob in this movie is terrifying. And that scene when Frodo is running through the caverns and like, you think he's going to get away, and the spider attacks him, but he, he fends it off with the light and with his sword. That Galadriel gave yeah. him. And then, and then he makes a turn, and he's stuck in the webbing. And you're like, oh, my God, he's stuck. So effed. And Howard Shore changed the tone of his music up for these scenes where um, Peter Jackson asked him to go back to his horror roots, where he did, like, a lot of... He, he's always been David Cronenberg's composer and david cronenberg especially in the 80s and 90s made a lot of like horror movies especially like body horror um and so he's like i want that kind of vibe for the scene and it's it's the most like horrific dreary music it's so great i love that you brought up aragorn and they're worried about the aragog. Themes, aragog i mean in the theme being too similar with the giant spider and then the mandalorian they're owned by disney so they're like who cares if we copy everybody <laughs> <laughs> We've People been, like giant spiders. We've been doing it for a century. It works. <laughs> but Sam, he never gives up on Frodo in this film. Even though Frodo banishes him away and tells him to go back home and and turns against Bye, him. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> and, but Sam never gives up on him. And he comes back after he finds the the bread that Gollum threw down the mountain. If I was him, I would have taken a couple of bites for energy, honestly. Yeah, you need those carbs, brah. But he eventually then saves Frodo. Frodo from the giant spider that's got him tangled up in the web. And it's a really good fight. It's an epic battle because Sam, again, he's a small hobbit. And you don't think much of these tiny creatures, but they are so, like Gandalf says, they managed to surprise you more and more. We watched this movie last week. And after the, after Sam fights Shelob and defeats it, I was just like, that was crazy. And I've seen it 20 times, but I was like, it's, it's a great scene. It's a great fight. I, I love Sam really proving himself and having a, a really big role to play because up to this point, he's always just been um, Frodo's um, an, an ear to Frodo and 
someone to give advice and comfort to Frodo up to this point. And to see him actually get his hands dirty finally was really great because then after this, he actually saves Frodo. Sam could probably be the most important he, character he in is. in the whole franchise and in this movie. Like I would say between him and Aragorn in this film because Aragorn creating the diversion, leading that attack on the on the Black Gate to give Frodo and Sam time to reach the... And it was his idea. To, to reach Mount Doom to throw the ring in. But also Sam, not only does he save Frodo in this moment, but he also cleverly takes the ring when the orcs are coming to find the body that's still covered in webbing. And then Sam's able to defeat the orcs and Frodo's very worried because when he wakes up and comes to, he doesn't have the ring anymore. But guess who has the ring? Good old Samwise. But there's a moment, there's that awkward moment where Sam, he seems to be like being tempted by the ring. Slightly, and, yeah. And it's like he's looking at it and he has this look on his face where it's like, it, honestly, Sean Astin is excellent in this movie. This guy is, he's great in this. This guy cries like on cue and he's just like slobbering all over the, like this guy does he should have gotten nominated for supporting actor. Maybe, but yeah, he's born to play this role, you could yeah. say. But he he has this look on his face where he like doesn't want to give up the ring. And then it kind of takes... It's not that he just totally gives it to Frodo. Frodo kind of has to take it from him. You know what I mean? So Sam kind of passed the test, but not completely, I would say. And then the third most important thing that Sam does eventually is he carries Frodo to the top of Mount Doom because, as we just stated... Aragorn, Gandalf, and the armies of men, the final army of men, are trying to divert Sauron's watching eye and draw his entire armies out at the Black Gates so that Frodo and Sam have a last effort to to empty out Mount Mount Mordor and get, reach Mount Doom. Imagine if they tried to walk through the army with the their disguise. <laughs> <laughs> You're like two feet tall. <laughs> Just a couple of orcs here. Just two scary orcs walking through Mordor. Don't mind us. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that Sauron's biggest weakness is his arrogance, because not only does he overlook hobbits as worthy beings or an enemy, he believes he can defeat the armies of man without a fight and with ease and sends all of his forces out there at the black gate to arrogantly show that like i'm just gonna end this for now no one can stop me but what's great is that even though all these men are outnumbered and they're engulfed and they're ready to fight though and aragorn runs ahead of the army because even though at this point there's a deleted scene that that sauron and his men try to insinuate that they've caught frodo because they have his his elvish chain link yeah it's a great scene where it's basically the mouthpiece for sauron it's this monstrous being who represents Sauron and he he speaks with Aragorn and the others and he tells them that uh, he they killed Frodo and they get they throw the chain link at him thinking that he's dead and it's a, it's a delete they had to delete it it doesn't work for the for the film but it's great special effects and it's like super creepy yeah watch it's, it on YouTube yeah it's or a great moment edition. yeah I'll, I'll, make, I'll make a clip so you guys can see it but not only do they mention that they killed Frodo but also that they tortured him significantly and he felt immense pain and that's why Aragorn has those tears in his eyes and in, in the theatrical version as he's running out and he says for Frodo because the characters are assuming that Frodo is dead but what's great about Aragorn even though he thinks he's dead he's still gonna fight to the death to the end so that Frodo's suffering that he thinks happened wasn't in vain. There's also another deleted scene. Oh, there's a ton of deleted scenes, bro. Right here. Yeah. What is it? So they actually filmed this, but they cut it out. So that moment when Aragorn runs into the run, run towards the army. Was he like hop on a skateboard? <laughs> <laughs> You're right, it wouldn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually originally intended he's running towards Sauron so in the in their original version uh before Aragorn Gandalf and the others this bright light appears right at the gate and this beautiful like ghost-like elf appears in front of them and it's like light and 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 effervescent and it seems peaceful and they're they're curious about what this creature is and then the creature turns into a physical embodiment of Sauron so literally the same Sauron that's in the opening sequence and so Aragorn runs towards Sauron that's what he's running towards originally so he's running towards Sauron and he has this fight with Sauron and then the battle happens around them and they cut the scene they they cut this they trimmed around it because Peter Jackson realized this does not work this is not a very good idea and he, he didn't think people would react to it very well. And so what he did was 
all the see all the moments of Aragorn fighting that troll, that big troll. It's actually he's actually fighting Sauron. He's actually fighting Sauron, but they just CGI'd a troll instead of Sauron. It's because Sauron's super tall, so it works with the with the moments and with the beats. And so yeah, he's like six six, ladies. He's like seven five, man. The guy's, <laughs> the guy's gigantic. And so they actually replaced Sauron with that troll. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, is there any way that they like, can find that or see it? Oh, I, I I'll throw it up there. You got, I'll you, throw you it up. Put some clips. That's yeah. why I show up on the YouTube version, yeah. everybody. So they didn't they didn't do all the CGI for the Sauron part, but there's the the white ghost like elf part. Gotcha. And then, but it's really great. It's it's really fascinating, and so. And so there's that moment where before the battle, Aragorn looks at the eye, mm-hmm. you know, and he can like, you can hear the whispering of Sauron. But what originally how they shot it was he's looking up at Sauron right in front of him. That's really cool. Yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah. So but yeah, you're right. It doesn't work as well. Yeah. So they, they didn't finish the, this, the practical and physical, the, the, the special effects and visual effects for it. So there aren't shots of Sauron, but there's shots of the, the elf like glowing in front of him. And obviously, while this diversion is happening at the Black Gate, Frodo and Sam have a open shot to get to Mount Doom, which takes them a long time because they are starving, they're famished, they're they're weak, they haven't showered in, in a they while. Have very small strides. Yeah, they they haven't had Wi-Fi in a, in a minute, so it's it's a tough journey because they have nothing left in the tank. And again, without Sam, Frodo doesn't make it to the top of the Mount of Mount Doom. He doesn't make it to the fires of Mount Doom. Because Sam picks him up. Because if I can't carry the the ring, I can carry you, man. And and then Gollum does interfere and they have that, that fight. And Sam manages to um, take control of the fight with Gollum and gives Frodo time to run into the volcano. And this is where I, I said in the first episode, the Fellowship episode, I believe that nobody, no being could ever destroy the ring in Mount Doom. I think that people can deny the ring, but I think if if so, if anyone has the ring at that moment with the destruction of it right before them, I don't think anyone can can um do it. And so this happens to Frodo where he's unable to actually throw the ring into the lava. Yeah, I completely agree because when I think the first few times you watch the movie, you're like, what did Frodo do? Why didn't he throw it in there? But you have to understand, even though he's the most pure, innocent being and he had the best shot to get it to Mount Doom and to the fire, like you said, nobody, nobody could put it into the fire. No elf, no man, no hobbit, no troll. He'd probably eat it. <laughs> so nobody would be able to throw it into the lava. But because Gollum loves his precious so much, fortunately, he's there to bite it off Frodo's ring when Frodo disturbingly puts it on his finger. And then that's the only way that the ring is destroyed because Gollum has it in trips. It's it's kind of accidental. It's, yeah, it's an accident. He it's, falls into the lava. It's ironic how, how it happens. And, of course, Gollum's happy to die with his ring, which is so weird. There's a great shot right here when, when Gollum and Frodo, in their fight, they both fall off the cliff. And then, like you just said... Gollum burns in the lava and and then Frodo he's hanging on the edge of the cliff right and then Sam is trying to grab him and he's like talking him into not just letting go and to keep going and there's a shot where when he decides that he wants to live Frodo reaches his bloody hand up and then Sam grabs it right this is actually an identical shot to the shot in Fellowship when Sam is drowning and then Frodo reaches into the water and pulls Sam out. So the, the shots actually mirror each other of Frodo saved Sam in fellowship in the water. And then Sam saved Frodo in Return of the King above the lava. Yeah, because you can tell that Frodo, he looks down to the lava. and he I'm sure he contemplated just letting go and just ending it because he lost his precious. And so I'm sure he's feeling that loss. And also he's so tired and what's the point anymore? Without Sam there to bring that optimism and bring that hope, that's the reason why Frodo survives. Yeah. It, probably my favorite shot of the entire franchise is the the next moment, the next scene when after they escape the the lava overflowing Mount Doom and they, they jump onto that that protruding rock and they just lie there as the as the lava pours around them. It cuts to black and then it cuts to this 
beautiful frame of um, another Dutch angle of them two on the rock with lava on the bottom left-hand corner of the frame and then Gandalf and the eagles surrounded by white, bright light flying towards them. And I think it's the it's one of the best shots I've ever seen. It's absolutely stunning. And I think it's the, the greatest shot of the entire franchise. Yeah, they used real eagles for that too. <laughs> <laughs> they were real giant eagles. And I love the shot because before they come, you can just see on their faces on Sam and Frodo that they were near death and they were probably about to die if they stayed on that rock much longer. Yeah. I mean, Frodo did it. and Well, Sam and Frodo and Gollum did it together as a team. Yeah, Gollum did it. <laughs> yeah, Gollum, Gollum did it. Gollum did it. <laughs> I love how I love how when the the tower explodes and Mount Doom blows up and then everyone is like, Frodo! <laughs> and it's like, Frodo should be like, Sam, don't tell anyone that, you, that, that I didn't want to throw it in yeah. there. Like, don't tell anyone. I'll fucking kill you. I'll fucking kill you. If anyone asked about my finger, an orc bit it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the uh, the 16 endings <laughs> <laughs> no but the endings are fun it's just a little tongue in cheek when Frodo wakes up in the bed and everyone's in slow motion like laughing at him and, and it's hugging very him. it's nice it's very it's cute. cute it harkens back to the, the fellowship thing so it's really nice And but um, what's really interesting is at the end of the film Frodo um, unbeknownst to his friends he decides to leave with the elves and he caught them all by surprise. Um, and they don't understand why he wants to leave. And he's he's going to Valinor, which is the undying, the undying lands of the elves. And what happened to Frodo on the journey is he was physically destroyed and he was emotionally destroyed. And I think I think his soul was was damaged. And he said he's what's he say? He says like um, something like broken me, something was wounded in me, and it, it can't be healed. Or something like that along those lines. And so he's traveling to Valinor to um, try and heal his spirit. Because his body was his healed up, but his bo- his spirit is what's still wounded. And so he's traveling there with the elves to, to do that and to try and save his soul, I think. I think you can also assume that it was in a way like a reward for his, his what he did to destroy the ring. And Gandalf goes with him too because that's where Gandalf's from. He's from... He's a god, so he was only, remember, sent back to Middle-earth to fight in this war and to, to do his part in defeating Sauron. So he's pretty much going back home. That's why he leaves with Frodo as well. And Bilbo goes because I think what he's done to help with the ring, he didn't you know, use it for nefarious means, but he had a, a role to play. He's the one who found it, and he kept it safe for a very long time. So I think he was rewarded in a way for what he did. And I think Frodo actually took Arwen's seat on the ship because she denied her seat. You got the COVID passport. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Peter Jackson shows his loyalty to the books where the final moment is Sam returns home to his family and he says, I'm back. And that's his real daughter. That's yeah. Sean Astin's real daughter too. Oh, cool. Yeah, which is really cute. Yeah. And of course- But that's what happens in the book. Is that's, that's the last line of the book. Is he, he says- I. It's something like I'm back or I'm finally back. And obviously we skipped over, but Aragorn is oh, yeah. crowned king of Gondor finally with his elvish prince who is there by surprise. She's like, it's like a like boom, surprise party. Arwen's here. <laughs> She's hiding behind that sheet over there. You didn't you didn't think that Arwen was behind that sheet with all those elves over there? Come on, Aragorn. You're smarter <laughs> than that. How could you not know? But it's great because now he finally has a full beard. I've been waiting for him to grow that thing out th- all three movies. Oh, yeah. And he looks very kingly and it's got he gray seems in his like hair. in the the city and the the country, I'm sure, fully support him. You can tell the respect that is exuding. He's got the an 89 approval rating. Yeah, he's he's killing it. So <laughs> he's he's gonna be a great. He, I think he'll be a great king for sure, and they all know it. Let's move on to some fun facts about Return of the King. Andy Serkis and Elijah Wood were each given prop rings by Peter Jackson after the filming, uh, and they both thought they actually had the only one ring, but he secretly gave them both one. I think I, I saw in an interview with Elijah Wood that there's actually like 10. Hmm. So I think everyone in the fellowship got one. Oh, cool. Well, they all got tattoos. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. To get enough extras for the bla- for the battle at the Black Gate, hundred several hundred members of the New Zealand Army were actually brought in. And they were apparently so enthusiastic during the battle that they kept breaking their wooden swords and spears. Andy Serkis' last day of filming was only 
a few weeks before the actual theatrical release of the movie. And the last shot was the reaction of Gollum when he this learns from Frodo that Frodo is going to destroy the ring. So after Frodo initially escapes Shelob and Gollum attacks him and then Gollum and then Frodo overpowers him, you know, and then Frodo says, I have to destroy it. You know that. And then Spiegel and then Smeagol Gollum freaks out on him and attacks him, but then falls off the cliff. That was his last shot was that face reaction. And Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson actually filmed it with Andy Serkis inside his own home with a camera. And they, so they filmed it on his, on the carpet of his, of his living room. And then Peter Jackson emailed it to the visual effects crew and they did the CGI of, of Gollum. Fans of the movies, they, they assume that there's this massive plot hole that happens at the end of Return of the King where um, after they destroy the One Ring, Frodo and Sam are picked up by Gandalf by the Eagles. And people are like, why didn't they just take the Eagles whole time? That's a huge plot hole, which actually it's not a plot hole because the Eye of Sauron would have definitely seen the Eagles flying. They would have been attacked. And also the Eagles themselves are very powerful and proud beings, and they would have probably been corrupted by the Ring as well. But they also didn't take sides in the War of the Ring until the very end, so they would not have assisted. Yeah, the, I would have seen the Eagles in a second. Like, hey, there's Eagles coming. You want to shoot them down with some bows? What kind of crappy movie would that be? It would be like 10 minutes long. Take yeah. these Eagles. How about you just sit back, relax, and watch the freaking movie? <laughs> <laughs> there are actually um different ending shot of this film. Um, they originally intended for there to be an epilogue with Cape uh, Lanchette. Uh, narrating and the Peter Jackson shot scenes of Legolas returning to his forest with the other elves and then Gimli um, returning. I'm not sure where he went, but all, there are scenes of Legolas and Gimli that were shot and filmed for the ending, but they just didn't use him. They didn't use him in the film. Viggo Mortensen and Billy Boyd, who plays Pippin, I believe, were standing off camera during Sam's wedding scene at the end of the film to pretend they were wedding guests in order to help Sean Astin's performance. That ends our episode on The Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King. Thank you so much for watching this one and hope you enjoyed listening to it wherever you are around the world. And make sure you, if you haven't checked out the, th the other two films that we did, they're all each Monday, the last three Mondays, so... Thanks so much for tuning in. Head on over to RaidersOfLostPodcast.com to get all of your content from us and find our merch and become a patron today. Take care, everyone.